Welcome to uh, Bible Quest, the Wednesday edition. I am Joe Works in Elmira, New York. Joining me as usual is Chase Byers in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. Good afternoon, Chase. Hey, Joe. How's it going today? Very good. Thank you. And Jeff Smelser in Exton, Pennsylvania. Good afternoon. Good to have you both uh, here. And uh, I feel like it's been forever since I've been on. So I thank you both for covering for me for the various uh, trips that I've uh, been making. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, I feel like uh, Piers Morgan and like I should just uh, get up and walk off or something. Um, <laughs> I heard about that. Have uh, Drew DeGrado in the background. Always appreciate Drew's uh, technical assistance. And so I um, wanted to give him a shout out as well. This afternoon, guys, we're going to talk about musical instrument, uh, musical worship, worship using music, musical instruments. I don't know what we're going to talk about. How do uh, you start say, say that word that starts with a W again? I'm not going to. Uh, <laughs> worship. Uh, uh, I, I can't even say it right when I try. Uh, so, Throughout the Old Testament, we have uh, people using various musical instruments in uh, service to God. And uh, then in the New Testament, it is uh, interestingly uh, absent. Um, uh, and uh, today, uh, I, I assume that you both uh, would face the same thing, but I get a lot of questions about that. Um, when people come uh, to uh, worship with us or to, uh, to join us uh, together um, and they hear us singing. A lot of times they like the sound of the, the singing, the acapella, but they're often curious, do we not have enough money for a piano or why don't we have, do you not have uh, somebody that can play the piano or, or right. whatever? Um, so it, it presents a lot of interesting questions. This might be a good opportunity for us to kind of talk through how we uh, answer those questions, how we uh, uh, approach the, the study of the scriptures in regard to using musical instruments or not in our worship to God. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate your your experience on that. It's very similar to mine, and um, I'm sure Jeff's. Um, I also, I think you're right. I don't think it's that people don't like the sound of acapella music. Acapella meaning in the manner of the church, literally, is what that means. And the idea is without instruments accompanying it. And I think most people actually like the way that it sounds, but because we're in the minority of churches that do that, it naturally makes them ask the question, well, why are you choosing not to have instruments in your worship service? Um, and so it's a, it's a good question. And um, I'm always happy every time we get it because they're noticing that the way that we're doing things is a little bit different from the rest of the world and from the rest of the way churches do things. Right. You're silent. Uh, Jeff. Jeff wants to say something, but he's muted. Still you're still muted why don't you try again this is really enjoyable here you were talking about it being kind of a minority position in today's world and it certainly is but it, it did not used to be yeah that's uh, yeah, an interesting point go back maybe we'll have a few minutes a little bit to go back and pull up some quotes but if you go back a couple of hundred years uh you're going to find presbyterians and methodists opposing instrumental music and um even you can go back a little further and you can find the catholic church opposing instrumental music uh not merely opposing it but speaking out strongly against anybody who would use it that's exactly right uh and that's i think hard for sometimes people to wrap their heads around that 
while it seems like that is the norm, that's the standard, and, and we're the sort of the odd ones for not using an instrument, that is a very, relatively speaking, it's a very new addition to, uh, to, to public worship. Um, I, I think that's, that's sometimes it's helpful to point that out. That's not our standard. Uh, it wouldn't matter if it had been around for the last 1500 years or not. That's not what our major concern is. But I think it is helpful to, to notice that that is a very new addition, uh, say for the last 2000 years since the time of Christ. You know what, let me just, since, since yeah, you have that, oh, am I muted again? Nope. No, no, you're fine. I, no, you're good. I also have a few quotes as well. Um, so maybe between the two of us, Jeff, we can get a couple of them on here. Go ahead. All right. Okay. Well, um, I'm going to pull it. I had it almost. There we go. Right there. So let me put this on screen here. And so, um, well, it's taken me longer to get there than I thought it would. But here we go. All right, now let me figure out how to share my screen and we are there. All right, so can you see this where it says God-centered worship? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so this is a quote from uh, Adam Clark who was a Methodist commentator in the 1800s. And he said, I here declare that I never knew them, musical instruments productive of any good in the worship of God and have had reason to believe that they were productive of much evil. Music as a science, I esteem and admire, but musical, but instruments of music in the house of God, I abominate and abhor. This is the abuse of music, and I here register my protest against all such corruptions in the worship of the author of Christianity. Um, and then he refers to John Wesley, and I can't find this quote directly from John Wesley, but Adam Clark was a respected commentator, certainly among Methodists and among Protestants generally. And John Wesley was regarded as the founder of the Methodist Church. And it says, John Wesley, when asked his opinion of instruments of music being introduced into the chapels of the Methodists, said, I have no objection to instruments of music in our chapels, provided that they are neither heard nor seen. And wow. you, get the, you get the idea. Chase, yeah. you already mentioned the meaning of acapella. And acapella basically means as at the chapel. There's one more quote that I want here. Where is it? Who, who is it that says it? Calvin. Do you have Calvin's quote? I've got, I've got Calvin's right here. I can read it. All right. Yeah. So John Calvin said, musical instruments in celebrating the praises of God would be no more suitable than the burning of incense, the lighting up of lamps, and the restoration of the other shadows of the law. Men who are fond of outward pomp may delight in that noise, but the simplicity which God recommends to us by the apostle is far more pleasing to him. That's Calvin's commentary on the 33rd Psalm. Cole, do you have a little bit more of it? That's um, all I have um, written in okay. my, at least in my document. He, he yeah. goes on and he talks about how those things were uh, for the, they were the, they were for the education. Uh, the puerile education is the word that he uses puerile is not a word we very often use but it has to do with the juvenile with the immature and the idea is god was using and of course you may remember in the 33rd psalm in verse 2 the passage that uh, he's quoting uh the psalmist says uh make a joyful sound is that how it goes let's see the 33rd psalm in verse um 
two, give thanks to the Lord with the lyre, sing praises to him with a harp of ten strings, sing to him a new song, play skillfully with a shout of joy. And, and the point he's getting at is that the instrument was a device that could educate people with the concept of joyfully making a joyful sound to God, worshiping God in that way. And um, it's teaching a concept that should come from the heart, but God takes this thing, the musical instrument to teach that. So, mm -hmm. so anyway, we'll, we'll talk about yeah. several things related to that as we go on. Well, and not only from an old uh, denomination, like a Baptist standpoint or Calvinism standpoint, um, this is what a Thomas Aquinas wrote back in the 13th century. He says, our church does not use mechanical instruments as harps and solitaries to praise God with all that she may not seem to Judaize, yeah. which I think is a super cool quote. We'll get into what, what that means to Judaize in just a little bit, why that's relevant. And then one so, other I like to read if it's okay. Oh yeah, go, go ahead. No, 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 go ahead, go ahead. One other I want to read. It's from it's Chase, from Charles listen. Spurgeon. Chase, yeah. just ignore Joe. He always wants to jump in and get in on these discussions, but we'll have a good show. <laughs> and it, you know, maybe we'll find a time for him to talk a couple of minutes. At the end. <laughs> All right, see you, Joe. <laughs> just we, Jeff, and I have gotten into this flow in the last couple of weeks without you. It's just easier to just oh, you know oh, what? Yeah, you won't. Get yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I'm teasing. Uh, but Charles Spurgeon, another very well-known old Baptist preacher from the 19th century. Mm -hmm. I like what he says. This is a comment of his on Psalm 42. He says, David appears to have had a peculiar tender remembrance of the singing of the pilgrims, and assuredly it is the most delightful part of worship and that which comes nearest to the adoration of heaven. This is my favorite part. He says, what a degradation to supplant the intelligent song of the whole congregation by the theatrical prettiness of a quartet, the refined niceties of a choir, or the blowing off of wind from inanimate bellows and pipes. We might as well pray by machinery as praise by it. Well, That's a pretty strong Spurgeon. statement. Um, but that was Charles Spurgeon. Okay, Charles let's Spurgeon. let Joe say something just so he'll feel like yeah. he's part of this. Well, Go so ahead, let, me, let me give a little bit of pushback on this. <laughs> um, so okay, that's enough, Joe. <laughs> through the Old Testament, uh, you know, these, these quotes, and I think Adam Clark's is probably the strongest, uh, you know, his uh, uh, viewing them as an abomination or boring them, uh, forget the, the terminology used there. Um, and I've read other quotes calling it carnality and that kind of thing. But we do have some pretty good passages like Psalm 150, um, uh, you know, that just emphasizes over and over praising God with the instruments. Um, David is the one who introduced uh, musical instruments in organized worship. Uh, he prepared the, the singers and the instrument players in First Chronicles 6, right? Um, uh, and certainly seems to be blessed, you know, that, that seems to be with God's blessing um, uh, that he introduces that. And in fact, during shall I say every major reformation, um, uh, you know, whether we're looking at people like Jehoiada um, uh, during the time of Joash, of course, that was short-lived after Joash became of age, uh, but Jehoiada in 2 Chronicles 23, or Hezekiah, 2 Chronicles 29, Josiah, 2 Chronicles 35, you know, whenever there was a major reformation, it talks about returning back to uh, the, the singing and the, the music uh, that David had ordained. 
Um, uh, and so if we would think of those reformations as being drawing people back to God, part of that was including these musical instruments as well. Now, I think all three of us completely agree on its placement in the New Testament, but I don't want to overplay my hand by suggesting that using a musical instrument has always been evil and God has never been pleased with that. Right, right. And you, you mentioned David, but going even back before David, maybe it wasn't as organized, David certainly organized it uh, to a greater extent than, than maybe it had ever been organized before. But all the way back in Exodus 15th chapter, when the Israelites come out of Egypt, uh, Miriam the prophetess, Aaron's sister, took the timbrel in her hand, and all the women went out with her uh, with timbrels and with dancing. And then Miriam said, sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so I, I think we ought to give it its due or its credit through the Old Testament. God was pleased with it, I would say. Um, it seems rather evident that God was pleased with it through the Old Testament. I really like the quote that Chase gave um, regarding its placement having the same credit as, say, the burning of incense and the other things that were pointing toward uh, yeah. Christ and uh, the new covenant. Um, yeah, the burning Thomas of incense. Aquinas. There you go. Uh, uh, I think he and Jeff, I think, went to college together. Um, uh, and so, uh, thinking about how the burning of incense was a pleasing thing to God, God ordained. But most people, if we tried to introduce the burning of incense in worship today, I think most people would sort of shiver at that. They, they would not, they, they would feel uncomfortable with that. And we're, rightfully so. We're, we're not told to do that. That was a part of the old law. It was a part of what they did in the old covenant but it's not something that we are told to do. And so I suspect that if we were trying to introduce that, we would have some of the responses like the John Calvin and Wesley and Thomas Aquinas and, and others uh, that, that you all were quoting. I suspect those would be the kinds of uh, reactions that we would get to that. Well, hang on a second. We, we need, we don't, we're not gonna do that sort of thing with good reason. But the, the musical instrument has been brought in maybe slow enough and uh, uh, carefully enough that now people don't really blink at it. Really, their hesitation is when we don't use it. Just to back up a little bit to your point you were making a moment ago, Joe, that we don't want to go overboard and make the case that God never approved of instrumental music. Mm -hmm. um, and there are people have, who have argued that, you know, they've, they've come to the conclusion instrumental music is wrong. And so they have, they feel compelled to say it was never right. And they can't imagine why it would have been right in one context or one era and not in another. And so one of the passages that they, and, and really the only passage that, that I'm aware of that I can remember where they've turned to find evidence that really God didn't even approve of instrumental music in the Old Testament is Amos, the sixth chapter, uh, verse five, where it talks about those who improvise to the sound of the harp and like David have composed songs for themselves. Um, and it's in a context where it's obviously negative. It's obviously a condemnation. It's a rebuke. So people will cite that passage and say, see, God didn't even approve it when they had it in the Old Testament. That was something David did. But the context in Amos, the sixth chapter, is not about 
sincere worship of God in accordance with God's instructions. It's about a materialistic lifestyle that is unconcerned with morality and the things of God and is preoccupied with ease. And so if you look at verse one, it says, woe to those who are at ease in Zion. Um, they, were, they had sin all in their midst. They shouldn't have been at ease. They should have recognized their, their uh, loss of fellowship with God and their dire circumstances in their condition. Uh, verse four, those who recline on beds of ivory, that'd be a very expensive bed. So they're wealthy and that's all they care about. They sprawl on their couches and eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall. In other words, they're caught up in a luxuriant lifestyle that we don't even have to let the animal mature. We can just have all the meat we want anytime we want it. We'll just take it right out of the, out of the stall when it's still young. And these are the people who improvise to the sound of the harp. And then in verse six, who drink wine from sacrificial bowls. So these are people who are not concerned with spiritual things, the things of God. They are concerned with their easy, rich, luxuriant lifestyle. And the music that's mentioned here is a part of that. He's not condemning instrumental music uh, across the board in worship. Right. Uh, so, yeah. Go ahead, Chase. I was going to say, so just kind of moving through our, our logic here. If God was okay with it in the Old Testament, then why all of a sudden would he not be okay with it in the New Testament? Why does God just change his mind like that? I think that would be a natural question a lot of people have. Sure. And so maybe one way to, uh, to consider this is, do we have other things that we have throughout the Old Testament that we don't have any longer? A lot yeah, of sure. Um, uh, in fact, uh, Paul talks about in the book of Colossians that uh, some of those things that were shadows, the substance is Christ. Uh, so, you know, what, what's, what's the difference between a shadow and a substance? Um, uh, you know, well, they, they look like each other, uh, but one of them doesn't have any body to it. Um, uh, it it's, not, it's not what we're really, it, it's not reality. Um, and that's the way that these things were in the Old Testament, but they were shadows. They, they were pointing to the substance. And uh, so, again, the animal sacrifices, the yearly feast, um, uh, the burning of incense, uh, a lot of those sorts of things um, uh, were fine through the Old Testament. They had a purpose in the Old Testament. They were to lead the Jews to, to Christ. Uh, tutor to bring bring them to Christ even. So are you saying that all of those things were physical and had no spiritual component to them whatsoever? Who are you talking? Who are you asking, Chase? <laughs> I'm, I'm talking to you, Joe. <laughs> so that's funny to us because Joe just presented, uh, did a great job with a presentation uh, last week down in Kentucky talking about the fact that the Old Testament, we shouldn't tell the Old Testament short. The Old Testament was not just a a list of arbitrary commands um, that were unrelated to the inner man. Uh, there are a lot of instructions in the Old Testament that at first glance uh, are, are about outward physical things, but they are designed to, uh, they're designed to teach spiritual concepts and they are designed to heighten uh, the spirituality within, within the individual. Um, the Old Testament called on man to uh, love God with all his heart. And um, 
So we don't want to make the mistake, Joe. Mm. I hope I'm saying this right. We don't want to make the mistake of dismissing the Old Testament as lacking in spirituality. Yeah. But go ahead. I was going to say, let's tie all this together and use another example. We were talking about sacrifices, but you can also talk about circumcision. So circumcision was obviously an outward physical thing they were doing in the Old Testament, but there was still language that talked about circumcising your heart as well in the book of Deuteronomy. And so there was a physical side of it as well as a spiritual, but we know in the New Testament, the spiritual application of circumcision in Colossians 2 is baptism. Um, And so I I think circumcision is a good example of that where it's physical, but also spiritual, but in the New Testament, very obviously spiritual. So I heard a, uh, I guess I read this in an article maybe, um, talking about going through the various covenants through the Old Testament, uh, coming to Christ. And as we are getting closer to to Christ, the, the Son of God in the flesh, uh, would we expect um, things to become magnified in worship and in service to him the closer we come to to the presence of god i would think so but do we but do we see that magnification in and i like the way this this article put it in quantity or in quality or or in both for example through the old testament we have animal sacrifices a lot of animal sacrifices. You get to the building of the temple, and there are thousands of animals that are sacrificed in 1 Kings 8. So when we come to the New Testament, we, we have greater sacrifice. But is it greater in number? Is it more animals, or is it greater in quality? And, and to me, that was really helpful to see that. It's not greater in number. It's greater in quality. It's Jesus is the sacrifice. And we don't sacrifice animals, we become living sacrifices. And so it's a, it's, a, it's a greater, or it's a magnification in quality, not in quantity. And I think that that kind of follows through, um, you know, even the, the feast uh, that, that were observed. Should we, you know, we have the three annual feasts. Should we have more feasts? They had the, the Sabbath. So should we have more of those? Or what we have in the New Testament is it more significant, like the remembrance of the Lord's Supper, the remembrance of the Lord's sacrifice in the Lord's Supper? To me, it was helpful to see that concept. And so when we look at the, through the Old Testament, you have the instruments in Exodus 15 and 1 Chronicles 6, and then going on through uh, Hezekiah and, uh, and, and Josiah and others there uh, that continued in the ways that David had uh, organized and then we come to the New Testament, maybe we should expect every kind of instrument to be played. But interesting, kind of like the animal sacrifices, we don't have any. What we find is a greater, a tremendous emphasis on the voice and the, the, the singing and it coming from the heart. Not that it wasn't supposed to be from the heart in the, the Old Testament, but that we find the greater emphasis in, uh, in singing are coming from our voices, from our heart and the new. I don't, I don't know if that makes sense or not. It, it did a lot when I read the article. Is it true that when we come to the New Testament, we don't see instrumental music? What about Revelation? So we've, we've go ahead. 
I was going to say Revelation chapter five. Is that probably where you're heading at? I was actually talking about Revelation chapter five, but uh, what, what did I say? <laughs> did I say did I put an S on it? Is that what it is? I think maybe you did. Okay, but listen, right. you know what? I'll sign called, off. I got called for saying the Ark of the Covenants recently, and I found that I had been saying Ark of the Covenants repeatedly. Uh, so <laughs> I'll just shut up for the rest of the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we've already. We've, we've relegated Joe to, to the cone of silence. If you go silence, it'll just be me. So. Yeah, well, we know that's how you want it. It's fine. <laughs> so, yeah, we, so we, um, chapter five. I, I get, the, I hear this. I hear people who, who try to, who want to believe that, you know, we should be using instrumental music today. I hear them say, well, there's revelation, there's, there's instrumental music in Revelation. And, and so let's read the verse. Uh, Revelation 5 and, and verse 8. Now, when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Wait a minute. You don't have to mention that part. Don't mention the part about the incense. <laughs> because or about every single person having a harp. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, this doesn't in any way uh, imitate what we find most local congregations doing nowadays. No, and, and if I could say this, if we get in our heads the concept that in the Old Testament, those animal sacrifices were intended to teach a spiritual lesson, but the spiritual lesson is the substance. In the Old Testament, that incense was supposed to teach a, a lesson. Here in, in Revelation, the fifth chapter in verse... Um, I'm looking in the wrong chapter, but in verse eight, it correlates incense and prayer. And you think about how to teach the concept of our prayers going up to God, where you burn this sweet smelling incense and let that smoke waft its way heavenward. That creates a physical picture and an aromatic picture of, of our prayers. Uh, you think about the temple in the Old Testament, and this was a place where God's presence was manifested Solomon, when he built it, said, heaven in the highest heavens cannot contain thee. How much less this house that I built. So he knew that God was not living in that temple in a literal way. And yet that temple was teaching the concept of God dwelling with man. Man had been estranged from God back in the Garden of Eden when God had cast man out. But now God has a plan to dwell with man and the temple represents that. But the physical building itself wasn't the thing. It was communicating a lesson. When we come to the book of Revelation, the book of Revelation is a highly uh, figurative book that reaches back into the Old Testament and brings out those images, brings out all those physical things, and reuses them in similar ways. It goes back and grabs the altar out of the temple service and reuses it to make a similar point. It goes back and uses the imagery of the lamb and reuses it to talk about the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus. And it goes back and talks about the incense and reuses that to talk about our, our relationship with God and our communication with him. And then you come to these harps. And again, it's going to reuse that to create the image of a joyful sound being made by those who serve God and stand before him. I think that it would be a mistake if we go to the book of Revelation and try to pull out one of those things like the harp. If it's going to be the harp, it might as well also be the incense and say, because it's in the book of Revelation, we should be doing it. We'd be missing the point of how the book of Revelation is using those things. That's exactly right. And, and even that picture there in Revelation 5, 
you know, that's around the throne. Uh, that's in the heavenly places, if you will. Um, uh, and so we're, we're not looking at something to be taken literal. And you, you made that point um, uh, really. Well, I, I, Chase, are you there? Yeah, I'm still here. I thought I thought it was my internet connection. I didn't. Well, I wasn't it was sure Joe's. if it was mine or if it was Joe's, but it must be Joe's. Joe, are you back? Yeah. So, well, I'll say I'll put it to you this way too. Um, at least when I'm studying this section, or, or people bring this section up in this context, even after I've said all that we just talked about, they'll still come back with, "Well, come on now." If they can use instruments in heaven, why can't we use them here? Yeah. And uh, I don't know. What, what, what would you say to that, Jeff? Well, I would say, first of all, prove that they use instruments in heaven. Um, I mean, we look at the book of Revelation. Is it saying that literally there are people up there playing harps? Harps are made out of what? Wood that grows on yeah. trees <laughs> that are on the earth. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it, yeah. I, I, you know. Uh, yeah. Now, if you say, well, if there, if instruments are used as a figure of speech in heaven, then we can use them here. Well, that's just a non sequitur. I tell you what we can say, if instruments are used as a figure of speech in heaven, we can use them as a figure of speech here. Yes, <laughs> we can, and it, we can do that. <laughs> and it is so much, so much of revelation and other sections that are more apocryphal in nature, where they're describing to you what it's like in terms of human words, like, and it kind of looked like this, and I don't really know else how to describe it because all I know to relate it to is what I see here on Earth. We, we and so a, I think seeing that is, is good. We have a viewer who who makes a good point. He's he's getting at this idea that if they're in heaven, then we can use them here, and he is he is challenging the premise. The premise being that if it's in heaven, then we can do it here, and uh, and he says Matthew twenty two verse thirty indicates there's no marriage in heaven. Uh, so heaven and what is now are not necessarily the same. Uh, so, so there are going to be some differences. So that's interesting too. Well, we've got 15 minutes left. And I don't know if Joe's going to be able to hop back on. It looks like he lost Wi-Fi. So he's, where do you want to go from here, Jeff? He's, he's trying to get back on it. He's lost his, his internet connection. But let's do this. Let's talk about, uh, here's, let's sum up what we've done. And then let's get at the question. The Bible doesn't say not to. So mm -hmm. let's get to that. But, but here's what we've done so far. We've said that God approved of instrumental music in the Old Testament, not merely approved of it, but we could go so far as to say what? He, he, uh, he, he commanded it. He, he oh, yeah, that, yeah, definitely. Yeah. And there were, I mean, it, there was also very specific ways. I don't know if we got into all this, like only certain priests were supposed to be in charge of it. I mean, it was a very detailed thing that was happening. Yeah. So, so first of all, let's get it nailed down. In the Old Testament, God not only approved instrumental music, he commanded it. <clears throat> and then, yeah. then we saw that there are a lot of things God commanded in the worship of the Old Testament saints that were physical, that involved physical things that were intended to teach spiritual concepts, but the physical things foreshadowed the spiritual. Um, I always like to go over to Hebrews chapters uh, eight and nine, where it talks about things made with hands, as opposed to the things in the heavens, um, the shadow, as opposed yeah. to the true. Uh, and I also like to go to John chapter four, where 
you've got this Samaritan woman hung up on where do we worship? And she's thinking of the two locations, what? Uh, one is either on Mount Gerizim or over here in Jerusalem. And, and the thing about both those places, they were the site of a temple. Now, to be sure, when mm -hmm. she asked the question, the temple on Mount Gerizim had been destroyed, but the Samaritans still worshiped there. And so they had both, the Jews and the Samaritans, had built a temple, uh, one temple on each mountain, Jews in Jerusalem, Samaritans in Mount Gerizim. And that was a point of controversy, which is the right place and which has the right house of God, the right physical building. Uh -huh. And Jesus says, well, those who worship the Father must worship neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem shall you worship God. But those who worship will worship in spirit and truth because God is spirit. And so what you see there is this contrast between the physical temple and, and the reality, which doesn't need the physical temple. And so, so what we've said then, while God did command musical instruments in the Old Testament, they were a part of a whole system of worship that used a lot of physical things that, that were intended to teach spiritual concepts. We get to the New Testament, and we have a passage such as Colossians chapter 2, where uh, Paul mm -hmm. talks about aspects of the law. And he says in verse 16, let mo no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of a feast day, the annual Jewish feasts, or a new moon, the monthly Jewish celebration, or a Sabbath day, the weekly observance of the Jews, which are a shadow of the things to come, but the body is Christ. Mm -hmm. Joe talked a few minutes ago about the shadow and, and reality. The reality is the one that is the substance. Well, Christ is the substance. But Christ cast a shadow in the Old Testament, and, and that shadow was made up of such things as their Sabbath day. The ultimate Sabbath rest is in Christ, but they had a Sabbath day and a Sabbath year and so on, and they had these feasts and so on. But Paul is saying, if you don't keep those, don't let somebody judge you in those things. They're just a shadow of the things to come. So, so we've done all of that. We've said all of that, and we've seen that in the New Testament, there really is no example of Christians worshiping with instruments. So here's the question let's get to now. Somebody come back and say, okay, I see all that, but the New Testament doesn't say not to do it. And, you know, they might want to go down the road. And if it was okay in the Old Testament, it's, new in the, it's okay in the New Testament. But Joe's already emphasized, and I think we were on board with him, that that logic would mean we could bring back the animal sacrifices. That logic would mean we could bring back the incense. So, so let's not go to the Old Testament and say if it was okay then. But still somebody's going to say, okay, okay, so I can't just go back to the Old Testament. But still... God didn't say not to. What do we do with that? Yeah. I think what we say is, well, why are you so focused on what he didn't say and not <laughs> so much focused on what he did say? Because yeah. God did tell us how to sing in the New Testament. And uh, since we're in Colossians 2, we'll just look over at chapter 3 yeah. and verse 16. Yeah. Um, Paul said, let the word of Christ rich, richly dwell within you with all wisdom teaching and admonishing one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Um, and so there's no mention of an instrumental music here. I would take this to just mean singing from your heart, singing with your voice, singing vocally, um, singing from your soul, uh, if you will. And that's as simple as it is. Paul will say a similar thing in Ephesians chapter five as well. But do you want to, do you have anything else you want to say about that before we look at that one? I'll go somewhere else first, but since Ephesians 5 is so similar to Colossians 3, go ahead. Yeah, Ephesians 5 um, in verse 18, 
And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody within your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. The reason why I like this one as well, it is a little more specific when it says singing and making melody uh, with your heart to the Lord. And so, Again, this is not anything that's being used, done with an instrument other than our voices with the heart. And so God does tell us what to use. In Hebrews, the 13th chapter, remember, by the way, we've talked about the contrast between things made with hands and the true, the shadow and the true that's seen in Hebrews 8 and 9. The book of Hebrews on the whole is trying to move Jewish believers uh, beyond the law and have them to really appreciate what they have in Christ rather than trying to be hung up on the things they had in the law. We come to Hebrews chapter 13, and it says in verse 15, through him, through Jesus, then let us offer up a sacrifice of praise to God continually. That is the fruit of lips, which make confession to his name. We make sacrifices, but not animal sacrifices. Our praise is the sacrifice that we offer. Would we think it would be all right to say, well, he didn't say not to offer an animal sacrifice. We wouldn't say that. We've said, Chase, we've said that in the Old Testament, there were things that were teaching spiritual truths, and those spiritual truths are true throughout time. And one of the things that we see being taught is about when, when we worship God, we need to treat him as holy by doing just what he said. The very concept involved in the word worship uh, is to acknowledge God as, as sovereign and ourselves as subservient to him. I don't do a very good job of acknowledging him as sovereign and myself as subservient if I just do whatever I want to because he didn't say not to. I, I, show, I do a good job of worshiping him and showing him as sovereign and myself as subservient to him if I just do exactly what he said for me to do. In the Old Testament, this concept is taught in, in various passages. Um, in 2 Samuel, the seventh chapter, uh, David was wanting to build a house for the Lord. Uh, sounds like a good thing because the Ark of the Covenant, I almost said it, Ark of the Covenants, the Ark of the Covenant was just dwelling in a little tent, which was not a very impressive place for the Ark of God. So David wanted to build a house for God. He's going to build his own house. Well, he should build a house for God. In fact, David had a nice house at the time. And you can look at that and say, wow, that's, that's a good motive. And God basically said through the prophet Nathan, did I ask you to build me a house? Oh. It's a rhetorical God question. Said, and it's, yeah, yeah he, God build. didn't ask. Yeah. And then there's the story of Nadab and Abihu in Leviticus, the 10th yeah. chapter. What'd they do? Uh, Nadab and Abihu offered up what it says a strange fire to the Lord and they're struck dead. And it comes right after two chapters, chapters eight and nine, where it's describing various sacrifices and processes of ordaining Aaron and his sons and consecrating them. And just over and over and over, you'll see the phrase, just as the Lord commanded. They yep. did this just as the Lord commanded. They did that just as the Lord commanded. They did the next thing just as the Lord commanded. And they set up this sacrifice just as the Lord commanded and fire came down from heaven and consumed it. God accepted that sacrifice. And the very next thing you read is in the first two verses of chapter 10, Nadab and Abihu brought strange fire, not as the Lord commanded. 
And fire came down again, but this time it consumed them. And the point God made on the occasion was, you shall treat me as holy. Yeah. So what we get out of that is when we do just as God commanded, we're going to worship him just as he commanded. We're treating God as holy. But when God said this and we just say, well, I think I'll do that. We're not treating God as holy and we're not doing just as he commanded. And so there's one of those instances where the Old Testament was teaching a spiritual lesson. And that spiritual lesson, we, we're not bringing incense because God hasn't commanded it today. Mm -hmm. But that in but that lesson, that lesson we need to learn. Yeah, no, I, I like the way you put that. When you ask the question, well, God didn't say not to, or whenever you use that argument, it's really an attitude problem at that point. It's not so much a, a theological or a textual argument. It's just, you have an attitude problem if that's what you're saying. It is. Um, if, if you're children, I mean, if you're listening and have kids, if, if you heard your kids say something like that in regard to something they should or shouldn't be doing, you'd be very disappointed. You would say, you should have more respect for me than to just say, well, mom and dad didn't say I, I shouldn't or wouldn't, so I'll just do it. That shows a lack of reverence um, to your parents. And it also, to me, it also just shows that you know the right thing to do. If you're having to say that, um, you're, I think you're trying to be a little sneaky. And obviously, I don't think the Lord would look well on that. So why do people today, why is it that people, and there are probably different answers to this question, why is it people are so drawn to wanting to use instrumental music in worship? Yeah, I, I thought about bringing this up earlier, but I was waiting for the right moment. Well, you know, when the, when the musical instrument first got introduced, not that long ago in comparison to the rest of the history of the church. It was to help with singing, help help with getting better on tune, on pitch. Is that fair to say? Um, that was a lot of the reason why it was getting introduced. I don't know. Honestly, Chase, I don't know that. Um, I know that certainly there are times when an instrument can help, help you find the pitch and stay on it. That's true. So, Historically speaking, some of the arguments I've heard is that why that's why the piano was first introduced to the into the church was to help people get a better voice or whatever have you. I think among among churches uh, that you and I are familiar with and kind of going back in their history, I think that it would be fair to say that at least a part of it was simply wanting to show we're uptown, we can afford okay. to have a, an order. Okay. Yeah. So take take some of the older reasons why musical instruments were getting introduced. And then you walk into just any modern evangelical worship assembly today and you walk in and they have instrumental music. It's not like it was 50 years ago when they had instruments in, in worship. Now it is more entertainment than it is actual worship. There was an argument to be made that they were doing it just for better voices or whatever have you. But now there's a separation between who's on stage and who's actually yeah, in the yeah, audience. Yeah. And it's more about producing a feeling rather than an actual intelligible um, yeah. fact-based yeah. worship assembly to the creator of the universe. So that's one thing. So, yeah. And I think that's one of the, one of the reasons why it is so popular now is it's more for entertainment than it is for worship. And the lines got blurred over the last decade. Well, I think or another so. piece of it is people who play a piano, uh, feel like, hey, this is something I can do. I've got a talent from God. And they want that to be a part of the worship so that they can use their talent. But the thing is, that's about me. You know, if I am so hung up on, I can do this, so I want to do it in the worship because it's a skill I've got. Well, that's about me. That's not about God. The fact is, we all have talents. 
Um, if I were just to ask you hobbies, talents, what's one that you would say you have? I'm pretty good at tennis. Pretty good at tennis. So should you be allowed to have a, a tennis demonstration in the assembly? You could get up and you could say, you could even say, folks, uh, I'm going to show you how to swat away sin. And you could get up there with your racket and your tennis balls and you could whack them away and give a spiritual meaning to it. I don't know that it would be wrong to use some kind of sermon illustration once or twice. But if every week we said, all right, now let's have our swatting away sin service where Chase comes in with his racket and his tennis balls and, and the tennis balls for us. And we all say, I can't wait till we we'll go to worship and have the tennis ball swatting up yeah. the sins or something. You know, yeah, that would yeah, be yeah, absurd. Well, yeah. But if absolutely. You said, but if you said, no, it's a talent I have and you can't, you can't tell me not to. God didn't say not to do it. That's about you, Chase. That's not yeah. about you. Exactly. Back. No, this is a good place to wrap up. Let's just, let's just wrap up there. Uh -oh. <laughs> I said, I, Joe, as soon as you came on, I said, let's wrap up there. That sounds like a good place to stop. <laughs> Thank you. you Take it away, God. Joe. You, you got anything else you want to say before we wrap up? No, I think I pretty much covered everything I know about the topic. Well, next week, let's, uh, let's do a new topic. Let's talk about how to do a webcast without interrupting it by jumping offline. You know, something, <laughs> how to maintain a Wi-Fi connection. We'll bring in, we'll bring in a Verizon expert next yeah. week. No, we won't. <laughs> It'll take us 20 minutes that's, on hold to get that's, on. That's, we, yeah, that's part of my problem right now. So yeah, <laughs> sorry about that guys. No worries. Well, it's your show, Joe. So you've got to tell everybody goodbye. Well, thank you for joining. Sorry for my uh, technical difficulties, um, uh, but I hope that this has been a, uh, a blessing to, to walk through. I appreciate the part that I was uh, included in. I hope everybody has a good evening. <laughs>